So thank you for coming. This is our sixth of seven classes. Time flies. Wow. Wow. So is next week the last one? Next week's the last one. Calendar show June 6th. The online calendar show is a class. I'll change it. Thank you. Sorry about that. Next week's the last one. I'll make sure to change that right away. Um, so I want to start today with a, a little case study of um, how Zionism has transformed transformed Jew, Jew, Jewish life and Judaism in. Uh, in uh, modern times, because today is a day on the Jewish calendar called Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is a what gets called typically a minor Jewish holiday. In other words, it's not a day when work stops. It's not a day that's biblically ordained. It's not a day. It's but it is a day that involves observance of some kind in the Jewish calendar. And it's called Lagba Omer because it's the 33rd day of the counting of the Omer. If you don't know about this, in Jewish tradition, starting on the second night of Passover, we do something called counting the Omer, which is that we count 49 days. And then the 50th day is the festival of Shavuot. So that Passover and Shavuot are connected by this counting that we do. That's called counting the Omer. So without getting too deep into the weeds, because this is going to be a whole other class, the 33rd day of the Omer is called Lagba Omer because Lamed Gimel in Hebrew is 33. Lamed is 30 and Gimel is 3 because that's how you do numbers in Hebrew. And uh, it's the 33rd day of the Omer. It is one of the most recent Jewish holidays. It starts sometime in the Middle Ages. Its origins are obscure. But what I can say with some confidence is that it is clearly a Jewish, utterly Jewish mystical holiday. Because the Jewish mystics of the Middle Ages took the counting of the Omer and made it into a mystical journey as well as a calendar journey and a symbolic journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. So it's a mystical journey of ascent also. And the 33rd day happens to be, in this mystical journey, uh, a very potent day in the counting, Hod Shebehod. And so I won't explain that either. Uh, like it's all fascinating. Okay. So what happens on Lagba Omer? Well, not much until recently uh, because um, there are stories about the origins of Lagba Omer having to do with the Roman occupation of Israel, Palestine back in 2,000 years ago and Rabbi Akiva and his students going into the woods to study Torah after Torah was outlawed by the Romans and studying Torah in secret in the woods, and building bonfires, and playing with bows and arrows, um, having bows and arrows. So they would study Torah, and then when the Romans came by, they would hide their books and pick up their bows and arrows, to just that they're just playing in the woods, right? This is a story. It's actually a, 
it's actually a story that is not very old. It's not Talmudic. It's not. It's all very in the last few hundred years. But that's another interesting excursion because think about um, think about the rabbinic medieval understanding of of Jewish masculinity. Right. It involves studying books as the height of Jewish masculinity and then, and, and then uh, to, show, to, to show that you're okay with uh, the Romans, you know, you take out a bow and arrow and pretend you're playing with a bow and arrow. The whole thing is so topsy-turvy about what you'd expect. You'd expect that the kids would go out in the woods, play with bows and arrows, and then when they saw the authorities coming, they would hide their bows and arrows and take out their books. Right? So, again, another fascinating excursion into how Jewish, the ideals of Jewish male power were always about learnedness. Something that gets turned on its head by the Zionists, for whom they want to be bows and arrow people. They want to show that Jews can do this. So, in modern times, Lagba Omer is another opportunity to uh, reinvent a Jewish observance that was once entirely mystical, but now in the land of Israel, it's a day when everyone goes out and makes bonfires. It's a May Day. I'm going to talk about it, Nate. But there's more. Because the hero of Jewish mystical literature is a sage who lived in the second century named Shimon Bar Yochai. His grave is purported to be on Mount Meron in the Galilee. Mount Meron is the highest mountain in the Galilee. It's about as high as Slide Mountain is here. It's about 4,000 feet high. And it's across a beautiful valley from the city of Tzfat, which perches on a mountainside across the way. And Shimon Bar Yochai's grave is purported to be on Mount Meron. So, for many centuries, Jews have made pilgrimage to Mount Meron, to Shimon Bar Yochai's grave on Lagba Omer, to light campfires and spend the night there in a kind of mystical vigil. In modern Israel, if you were, if you were at Mount Meron today, first of all, you'd better have gotten there early because there are hundreds of thousands of Jews converging on Mount Meron, everything from the most ultra-Orthodox to the kind of religious, hippie, spiritual types, to just anybody who likes a giant bonfire, (laughs) right? And the traffic is backed up and the police are out and it's going to be an all-nighter tonight and it's already 7 o'clock. So, no, it was last night, I'm sorry, because... Uh, this all happened last night. It's over now. Um, and and it is, it's a thing. Right? Burning man. It's a burning man. That's right. It's a thing. And because people light bonfires all over the country, and unfortunately there's also an intense heat wave in Israel right now, um, the authorities and the rabbinic authorities, they got the rabbinic authorities to chime in too, to tell everybody to keep their fires under control. Right? So it's like, so what does it mean now to live in Israel? 
It means that you're living by the Jewish calendar. It means that you're living where these sages walked. Right? It means that you have an indigenous spring May Day type festival that's part of the Jewish calendar that hundreds of thousands of Jews, religious and secular, are all observing together. To grasp the transformation that this represents in the life of the Jewish people because of the success of Zionism, you have to wrap your mind around it. Uh, it, it does, is that, am I painting a picture now? The, the reason I wanted to tell you that is that today's that day, and without is Zionism, without Israel, Lag Bomber wouldn't be what Lag Bomber is today. Uh, Nate, you were there. I was there. Everything Jonathan says about it times it by a thousand. It is crazy. <laughs> I went there with Lucas, my son. They don't, they, people don't stop coming. I mean, we thought like at three or four in the morning, people are first getting there. And the fires are everywhere. And it's filled with mostly Orthodox. But you're right, people from all over the place. And we didn't know what to, we didn't uh, set ourselves up for a place to stay because we did we figured out we'll check in someplace. <laughs> it's impossible. So when we left there, we left there as it was getting light out. It was probably five in the morning. I don't remember what time. And we wandered the spot. And somebody says, look for this woman Shoshana. We're in spot. Anyway, to tell this woman is, is, is walking in the streets. And it's just getting light, and we say, excuse me, can you tell us if we can find a person named Shoshana? She says, I'm Shoshana. <laughs> Honest to goodness. We says, we need a place to stay. She says, follow me. She takes us to this house. There must have been a thousand people sleeping all over the place, on the floors, on tables, everywhere. So we found the piece of floor, each of us, and that's how we spent the night. And uh, it's just a total insanity thing. But the spirit is unbelievable because when you're at a thing like that, you don't care. You know, it sounds like, oh, it's such an imposition, you don't have a place to stay, and crap. but nobody cares. It's just a beautiful, beautiful event. Thank you, Nathan. What There's are they an... celebrating? Us getting happy about what, what are they... What are they getting happy about? Yeah. Um, they're celebrating... Well, I think that the origin of the holiday is in medieval Europe related to May Day. That's what I think. And just the way every holiday, every, different observances get absorbed into different cultures, an opportunity to go outside in the spring, to spend up all night. And so ostensibly what they're celebrating is the hero of Jewish mystical literature by making a pilgrimage to his grave, Shimon Bar Yochai. And um, that's what they're celebrating. Um, but it's pretty vague. It's pretty vague. And, but think about, think about various blowout holidays. What, why are we doing this? It's like, because we can, you know. Is he well read today, this guy they're celebrating? Well, he is the, I'm not saying, he didn't write the material. He's the hero of the Zohar. Shimon Bar Yochai lived in the second century. What was that last name? Shimon Bar Yochai. Shimon, son of Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He's attested to in the Talmud 
as a very powerful mystical rabbi. In the early Middle Ages, in the 12th, 13th century, a manuscript appears called the Zohar in Provence in southern Spain, uh, purporting to be the, written by Shimon Bar Yochai. It's been shown conclusively by scholars that the author was someone named Rabbi Moshe de Leon, who lived in Provence, but who wrote in, in Catalonia. Catalonia. Well, but they were so connected. They were connected, but he was. He was in Catalonia. Okay. When when was he living? Thirteen hundred. Okay. Um, and the manuscript, but the way to make a manuscript uh, ha- feel valid is to attribute it to antiquity. And that's what's been done throughout history. Um, and so the Zohar, where Shimon Bar Yochai leads a group of, Chevra uh, leads a group of colleagues around a mystical landscape in the land of Israel, and they have astonishing visions, and uh, uh, is the book called the Zohar, and is a mystical commentary on the Torah. So, uh, is that available in English now? Yes. yes, there's a superb annotated translation in English by a man named Danny Matt. If you look at it, you still won't be able to make heads or tails of it. <laughs> um, and at least, if you choose to read it, get the first volume and read Art Green's introduction. That will at least give you an idea of what you're going to be staggering through, which is like this mystical, poetic, free-associating... It's astounding. But you really... Reading it called, whoa, good luck. Um, however, if you read Art Green's introduction, introduction to the Zohar in the Danny Matt edition, Daniel Matt. Uh, I don't, I don't want to go teach this class now, but that's yes, Carrie. Well, this is a very misremembered thing, but I thought Lot Bomer was the one time you could get married or something. Yes. Also, during the 50 days of the counting the Omer, it's a, it's, a, it's a time of anticipation, vigil. It goes all the way back to, in ancient time, to counting the Omer was originally waiting for the uh, grain harvest to be ready. And it was a time of anticipation because this would be the new grain. And uh, that's why Shavuot is called the Festival of First Fruits. And... Uh, uh, so it was considered a time when you didn't get married, when you practiced, you, 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 it was a time of vigil and waiting. And somehow, in the Middle Ages, the 33rd day became a day when that was suspended in this outburst of vitality, and so you're also allowed to get married. Another thing that happens, again, a fairly, fairly recent custom, when I say recent in Judaism, I'm talking about several hundred years. Right, a fairly recent custom is that there's a tradition that little Jewish boys uh, do not get their first haircut until their third birthday. And uh, so many, many ultra-Orthodox Jews come to Mount Meron with their boys. They don't wait for their birthday, they wait for the third year. And it's called an upsharing in Yiddish, shearing. Uh, and all these little boys get their first haircuts on Lagba Omer, which leaves them with payas, right? If you shave everything else off, you leave the side curls. Okay, so, yes, there's a lot of customs around the Omer. Yes? Um, my oh, son, sorry, Carrie wanted to say something else. I want my son shaved today. 
your son shaved today, right. Orthodox Jews don't shave during the counting of the Omer, but Lagba Omer gives them a breather. Uh, yes, Karen. Oh, I was just wondering if they conflated Shavuos with this natural event, like if that was, you know how they say like Christmas took over a pagan. Oh, conflated Shavuos with? This, you're saying it's a natural time when the harvest, when the Oh, no, Shavuot originally is an agricultural festival. Yeah. All the Jewish holidays are originally agricultural festivals onto which were overlaid our historical, mythical story of coming to Mount Sinai. And on top of that gets overlaid in the Middle Ages a mystical narrative. Of, uh, so it's all, they're all like layers and layers and layers. Every holiday has many, many layers of significance. Um, okay, so back to my theme, which is that, I'll, I'll repeat it, which is that Zionism was an astonishing success in many ways because having collected the Jews who came, went, decided to move to the land of Israel and reestablish a Jewish culture and community there, then were living in their indigenous, formerly indigenous landscape where Shimon Bar Yochai had walked and had the mountain where he, was, where he was purportedly buried, whether he is actually buried there or not, we don't know, like most saints' graves, right? Um, and have a ma- enough of a mass of people, Jewish people, to create a vibrant new religious cultural event, right? based on all the threads of the Jewish past. That was what Zionism wanted to do. It succeeded beyond its wildest dreams in that regard. So we'll be getting back to that theme because one of the things I want to discuss in the last two classes is in what ways was, did Zionism succeed and in what ways has it not? You know, so, and, and, uh, so that's, that was since today's Lagba Omer. It just doesn't seem right for me not to acknowledge it and then to tie it into our theme of this class. We have had most years a campfire here. <laughs> Because um, that's what you do. And we've had music, and we've had a cookout one time. We, we just couldn't get it together this year, with apologies. Otherwise, we'd be out there having a, a cookout. Um, but we mark, the, we mark it as well. But we didn't do it this year. Okay. We ended last class discussing the emergence of revisionist Zionism and Jabotinsky and talking about the, um, the spectrum upon which nationalism exists, all the way from nationalism as a means to a, a, a goal of creating a society that's just, and that stands for morality and certain values, all the way to nationalism as an end in itself, which is called fascism, where the state and power are worshipped, where it's understood in that realm that the, that the world does not function on moral, human society does not primarily function on mor- moral decision-making, but on who's got the biggest guns and who has the power, and who has the organization, and all of that is the grand spectrum of nationalism 
the tension that every national movement finds itself wrestling along, tugging a tug of war along. Um, that same spectrum existed in by the late 1930s in uh, uh, in the world of organized political Zionism. Now, were we talk? Forgive me, because you know I've also been teaching this on Wednesdays. Did we talk about the role of uh, the revisionist Zionists in fighting the British mandate last time? Were we talking about that? In the Haganah, the Irgun. The Haganah and the Irgun. Did we talk about that a little? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, in the years leading up to the foundation of the state, there were competing militias amongst the Jewish political organizations. <clears throat> However, the Haganah, which was the defense organization of the um, labor Zionists was also, because the labor Zionists basically had control over this emerging shadow government that the Zionists were creating, the World Zionist Organization was creating, the Irgun was the outlier. The Irgun was the militia of the revisionist Zionists. They were also the ones who categorized themselves, as I think I said last time, as today would be called definitely terrorists. Right? or freedom fighters, depending on who you're talking on, because they were, in their opinion, there was no action that wasn't justified in getting the British out and in securing Jewish independence. Whereas the labor Zionists were firmly of the opinion that we have to be more strategic, we have to take what we can get, we have to bide our time, we have to work underground, different approaches to nation building. I think not being not having the final word on this, I don't think we ever will, somehow it was the combination of these two efforts that somehow, along with historical forces way beyond the Zionist control, that eventually uh, were part of what persuaded the British that they were going to leave the mandate behind and give the whole thing over to the United Nations. <clears throat> and uh, when the state was founded in 1948, uh, uh, I read you a piece of the Declaration of Independence. It was a declaration firmly embedded in the social democratic humanist version of nationalism that the labor Zionists espoused. And the Declaration of Independence is clearly a document that says that this Jewish state, which will be a place for the ingathering in of all Jewish exiles, will also be a place that protects the rights of all its citizens, regardless of race, creed, or color. And that is the Israeli Declaration of Independence. I have a copy here, which you can take later. Yes? Oh, yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very good document. Uh, uh, you mentioned it uh, two weeks ago. I wasn't here. Oh, okay. Well, here it is. And, and I'll just, we won't read it now. We'll just give it out at the end to anyone who wants it. Okay. So first I want to talk about the path of Zionism um, in, uh, within the emerging state of Israel in the, uh, over the last few decades. Uh, some, and then we'll talk about this sort of mm, the larger context in which Zionism gets turned into the, essentially the boogeyman of the entire United Nations. Um, we're going to talk about those as they're all in intimately related to each other. And then I also want to talk about 
this week and next week, finally, the emergence of Palestinian nationalism and uh, <coughs> the kind of ironic, ironic bedfellows that Palestinian nationalism and Zionism make together. Um, and we'll talk about that as well. The labor Zionist vision of a social, an egalitarian um, social democratic society is the ethos of Israel that many of us grew up with. You know, informal. Um, and uh, truly, there was no wealth gap. There was no wealth. But there, there was no wealth gap in the first decades of Israel. Um, uh, there, the, 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 the world we know today uh, that begins, I guess you could say, with Reagan and Thatcher and the demise of, uh, the demise of socialism and the elevation of the free market um, in the 1980s also took over Israel. And the Zionists, the, the Jabotinsky's party, now known as the Likud, uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu embraced free market capitalism. It was part of revisionist Zionism platform that communism and socialism was to be abhorred and that uh, the, uh, the national economy was primary, not, uh, and so, so they, they, were, they were early conservatives who were in the wilderness, just like the conservatives in this country for those decades of liberal kind of, the, the liberal great society uh, that then in the 1980s began to reassert their control over uh, the ideology of the mainstream. Uh, the same has happened in Israel. And one of the things to keep in mind, again, is that even though each country has its own unique situations, the larger trends are, um, are going to sweep us all along, especially smaller groups that are just trying to keep their economies alive and get by in an emerging global economy, right? Very hard to maintain your ideals uh, when they're being swept away everywhere. everywhere. Um, but the ideology of the kibbutz movement, the labor Zionist ideology, which was the, pion the, the pioneer, the, 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 so, the informality, the, so, the soldiers uh, uh, standing, you know, this new Jew that the labor Zionists wanted to create, um, was the image that we grew up with. Um, it was still true in the 1970s uh, in Israel, this public ethos. When Yitzhak Rabin was in, who was the former, was the hero of the Six Day War, when Yitzhak Rabin became prime minister in the mid 70s, he actually had to resign from being prime minister. You may remember this, because it was discovered that his wife had an, um, uh, a bank account in the United States, which was not allowed. You weren't allowed to hoard wealth outside of the country. It had like $5,000 in it. I mean, this was enough of a scandal in 1976 to force Rabin to resign from being prime minister. Compare that to, if you read the news, to what Netanyahu is being indicted for today. And that's not to make, I'm not saying 
I'm not saying that to, even though I, I dislike Netanyahu intensely, I'm not saying that to, to make him, to make, you know, to trash him even further. I'm saying the Prime Minister of Israel today can be under indictment for accepting huge bribes from foreigners, right, non-Israelis, as well as Israelis, and still get re-elected. Okay? That's how the world has changed. That's how Israel has changed. That's how the United States has changed. That's how, it's like, God willing, it's going to change back again. That's all I have to say. Um, but for those first decades of Israel's existence, this labor Zionist ethos was the predominant understanding of what the societies were building. Now, we're going to talk about Palestinian Israelis, and Israeli Arabs, Arabs who are citizens of Israel. We're going to talk about that, because uh, that's, that's an additional category. But in terms of this emerging Zionist society, we're creating a new Jew and a new society based on justice for all, and uh, based on phys physical uh, ability and uh, military prowess and um, uh, a radically egalitarian vision of a society. We fell in love with that. You know, so did the weavers. It's like we all did. It was amazing. <laughs> Do you have a sense, like now Israel is such a powerhouse of technology and stuff, before they switched over to this... It's all very gradual, of course. Yeah, were, were they making as many um, breakthroughs scientifically and stuff, like in the socialist? Oh, well, you have to see a country that's being established out of nothing. So its yeah. growth is it's incremental, but also geometric at so, some point. Yeah. So... Yes, but this was a when when American Jews were approached in the fifties and sixties and seventies to give to the Jewish National Fund, Israel needed the money. Yeah, so they didn't have the money. Uh, they this was this was a brand new country, scrambling for international support, finding it in very few places, making overtures to the Soviet Union, to the United States, to France, to Gaulle, to anybody, anybody. Right? It's hard to remember just how tenuous and beleaguered it was for Israel, and especially in its first two decades. Um, so yeah, all the seeds were there, but the economy wasn't there. Right. In the new Golda Meir book, they would ship her out. They do what raise, to her? Raise money. Oh yeah, she Golda Meir. She, they would send her, especially the United States, but all over the world. She was the one that got money. She would bring in millions of dollars from Jews donating, you know, going, going all over the world. Golda Meir, yeah. Um, and uh, again, that was the nature of a country that was not a uh, established uh, economy or borders or or anything. Um, and I think I described to you last time the low-level war that was going on constantly in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and you'll remember them, and uh, I think, did we talk about the North African and other Jews from Arab-speaking countries last time? A little bit. A little bit. Okay, we'll get to that too. Um, uh, okay, but what I want to say is that the beginning of the transformation of Israel, of Zionism, from being this, the labor Zionist vision into the Zionism that's predominant today in Israeli society, really starts at the Six-Day War. 
That's really the origin of the shift. Jane? Mm -hmm. So, um, it hurts me to think about the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian villages starting in the 40s. And so, that's a piece that we have left out in this miraculous creation of the Jewish state. Okay, so let's back up. And we'll talk about that first. Keep the Six-Day War in your mind as a turning point in uh, uh, which, which uh, vision of Zionism predominates. What's the date of the Six-Day War? 1967. June 1967. So, Palestinian nationalism. There is this place, remember there's this place called Palestine that was an Ottoman uh, province taken over by the British after World War I. There was um, not a people known as the Palestinian people that lived there, but there were many Arab peoples who lived in this area called Palestine. They identified mostly by their clan, by what village they were from, um, uh, whether they were Christian or Muslim or Druze, or even uh, other sects, Cherkessian Muslims. Um, and uh, with the, as I explained last time, when the Balfour Declaration came to pass in 1917, that you could say this is the beginning of the Jewish-Arab conflict in the land of Palestine, because it was very clear that at that point that the, the Zionists had aspirations. Yes? So they didn't feel they had a country at all? If you met one and said, where are you from or where do you live? What would they would you say mean? their village. Mm-hmm. That's right. No, there, there was a pan-Arab nationalism emerging. Did I talk about this? I'm sorry. A little. Yeah. There was a pan-Arab nationalism that was, that was very real, that was hoping that the British would support their national aspirations after getting out from under the thumb of the Ottoman Turks for 400 years. Um, and I mentioned how Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 1950s nationalized the Suez Canal, which led to a war with France and Britain and Israel in 1956. These were Arab nationalist aspirations. Um, the Palestinians start identifying as a people only in so there's a bitter conflict in the 20s and 30s and 40s, a civil war within the British Mandate Palestine uh, uh, between the uh, many of the Arab residents and the Jews who've moved there. The British try to referee it they, with more or less success. The short version of this history is it's a mess. It is a chaotic mess. Yes, Howard? How did that mandate come about? Uh, the British won World War I. They carved up the carcass of the Ottoman Empire and said, we're taking Palestine. Yeah. Um, that's how it came about. Yes, so Carrie? The time when Syria and Iraq and I guess... I this is when Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, Saudi Arabia were all invented. So so were they, any of them at that point, saying, hey, you left out the Palestinians? Or no. Or were just happy with their peace? 
well, happy with their peace. These were pseudo-nations. These were boundaries created by the French and the British and then handed over to various um, uh, uh, tribal leaders who got, got crowned, uh, who had cooperated with them in the war against the Turks. Right? These were pseudo-nations. Arab nationalism was very uh, um, unfocused. Does that make sense? So they didn't, they didn't champion the new nation-states exactly. It was more just... It was more different rulers consolidating their grip over oil fields. But the pan-Arab uh, nationalism... The pan-Arab nationalism that starts to emerge among the intellectuals finally comes to flower under Nasser in Egypt in the 50s. It was a secularist. It was not a religious movement. It was a secular national movement in the image of modern secular nationalism where the Arabs said, we want in too. What they think of the nation states, like what they think of. I don't know. I don't know enough. All I know is that Nasser was really the driving force in the 50s and 60s of pan Arab nationalism. And Syria and Egypt were part of something called the United Arab Republics for a number of years, as this idea of an Arab speaking nation, national um, idea emerged. The smaller ideas of Egyptian or Syrian or they, in my very amateurish reading of all this, they, they didn't take, quite take root the way European nationalisms uh, did more successfully. For example, why did Iraq fall apart when the U.S. toppled Saddam Hussein? Because there wasn't an Iraqi national uh, ethos. There were the Kurds in the north, there were the Sunnis and the Shiites, and they'd been basically held together as a nation by a brutal dictator. What happened when the civil war broke out in Syria under Assad a few years ago? They broke into warring sects. The Alawite uh, Muslims, that is Assad's tribe on the coast, the um, Sunnis, uh, the Kurds up in the northeast, Syria fell apart. You understand, it's the same as we talked about with what happened with Yugoslavia, which was also a so-called nation enforced only by a brutal dictator, Tito, right? As soon as Tito died, it split into warring factions and incredible bloodshed, and uh, that only resolved itself more or less into this hodgepodge we see now of Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro, right? Um, so all of these nationalisms weren't firmly rooted in the identity of the people who lived there. They were nationalisms that were imposed either by external uh, powers, European colonial powers, or by following that internal dictators and uh, 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 strongmen. Um, I hope this is reasonably true, the things I'm sharing with you. Um, okay. So, yes, Joan. Well, I think what I'm getting from all this is that the, you know, the tribal culture of the Arab, you know, yes. wandering tribe. They're not wanderers, necessarily. Uh, Many of them were landed farmers. Okay. But they were village-based and tribe-based. And, and they, they had that tribal of fidelity. Right. Mm -hmm. 
so that never translated into a larger picture of a nation state. Am I understanding? In certain cases. Uh -huh. In other cases, yes, more so. Some nations, some, some Arab nations are more successful than others. Mm -hmm. So you can't generalize entirely about it. Egypt is a successful nation. Mm -hmm. People feel like Egyptians. They have an ancient culture that they're proud of, that they feel connected to. All the, you need all those formula, all the ingredients. To make a successful nation, you need the ingredients of nationhood. Egypt is well-placed to have those ingredients, having an ancient history and a sense of place and, and, a gr and a glorious past and all that. You follow what I mean? Uh, Morocco is more stable. There's a Morocco, you know, Tunisia more stable. And then there are other countries that are not. Uh, Nate? No, I'm just saying you really can't compare Egypt to Syria or any of those other countries. Egypt is tradition, it has history. That's what I'm saying. Syria doesn't have any history. Well, Syria does have a proud history. Well, Syria, but... but Jordan, those countries, like you say, were formed after World War I. Right. Not Egypt. That's right. That's right. So, so it, it's very, it's not, it's not good to make gross generalizations. There are more successful In a world that reorganized itself into new tribal units called nations, that's what they are, mm -hmm. right? And, and I'm going back, that's why it's so important in teaching this class that I started a class and I keep harping on Zionism as an expression of nationalism, which is a new organizing principle since the late 18th century, right? In a world where na na the, new, the new tribe is the nation, some are more cohesive, coherent, successful than others. Uh, many nation states emerged under colonial rule because the British or the Portuguese or the French uh, educated, brought their education system and their ideology to these colonies where they were extracting wealth. And a certain segment of the society grew up being educated in these mores and then said, what are we, chopped liver? We're a nation too. And so over and over again, colonies who of imperial powers would become educated in the Western ideology and then say, get out of here. We're, you, we are a nation too. The same thing happened with the Palestinians. Uh, that's the same phenomenon. Israel is a successful new nation state. Um, new old. Well, but there's no old nation state. I'm saying nations are a new concept, right? However, yes, we all agree that it's new old. But no, there was an Egyptian nation. I know, but I'm using the word. I'm using the word nation specifically to represent this combination of factors that we consider what makes a nation a nation today. So, what would you have called it in the old times? Well, using the word nation, it depends. It's kingdoms. always kingdoms. kingdoms. Yeah, kingdoms, societies, empires. Uh, yeah, I would give it another name. People. Uh, it, people with a capital P, you know. Um, but doesn't, when Netanyahu and others talk about, you know, Judea and Samaria, aren't they 
deliberately inferring that those were nation states that are being repopulated? Not exactly. No. Not exactly, no. So when I'm using the word nation state... But aren't they, I'm saying? No. no. When I'm using the word... Uh, that, if you have a national mythos, a national myth, the myth is that this land has always been our homeland. Mm -hmm. Whether that's true or not, that is the defining feature of it. So yes, you retroject back to your ancient history. In the case of the Zionists, in the case of the Jews, they're right. It is our ancestral homeland. And while we were in exile, another people moved in. Right? Those, both those things are true. Okay? Which gets me again to what I'm going to have to say over and over and over again is that the only way there will be a cessation of conflict is if both parties recognize that they each have justified claims and then compromise. Okay? That's why. But the Jewish claims are valid. Just have to read the Bible. It's all right there. We have the archaeological record. We have the historical record. This is where our ancestors walked. This is our indigenous land. Right? That's all true. Um, and it's also true that other people moved in while we were gone. That's true. So I don't know how else to talk about this. However, those other people do not have an ancient, unified story about their connection to the land with ancient literature and with heroic stories of yore. Mm -hmm. Palestinian nationalism is a much newer nationalism um, because I think I talked about this last time and again uh, mm -hmm. um, um, uh, when the I think I was talking about the draining of the swamps last week and the eradication of malaria, many Arab people moved to British Mandate Palestine during this period because of the uh, opportunities there, because of this growing economy that, was, that the Zionists were driving. And so there were many Palestinian families with long histories in the region. There were many Arabs who moved into the region during the 20th century for job opportunities and economic, uh, who were not long in the land. Um, so, uh, in, a, in so, the War of Independence happens. Let's see. One of the difficulties that the Arab population of Palestine faced in the 20s, 30s, and 40s is that they did not have a unified leadership. They did not have a coherent nation in waiting. They had different leaders in the north, here. The Mufti of Jerusalem assigned by um, the British Mandate to be the religious leader there. Uh, the leading families, the Nashashibis and the Husseinis, who are in conflict with each other. When, during the riots of 1936 to 1939, the Arab riots, where many, many Jews were killed, more Arabs were killed by Arabs than Arabs killed Jews during that period. In other words, you had a leaderless, chaotic situation. 
which where where it one of the reasons the, the Zionists won the War of Independence was because they had spent decades preparing a unified um, uh, social and governmental system, mm-hmm. right? So part of part of the weakness of the Arabs who opposed them was they did not have that. Does that make sense, everybody? So the Palestinian national movement, such as it was, hadn't successfully asserted itself in any institutional way until the late 1950s. That's what I want to make clear to you. That's not to say that they don't deserve a national movement or that they weren't really there or, or, or. Rabbi? Yes? Is it fair to say, in your opinion, that an underlying bias rarely spoken is that this is evidence that Jews are smarter than Arabs? I'm asking a question. Um, Because the the Jews organized and created... Check that. Let's get to that later. Because that's part of a larger conversation uh, that that I think I can contextualize. Um, But right now we're talking about... We want, Jane, appropriately, want to talk about the emergence of Palestinian nationalism and, hold on, I'm, I, I, know, I think I know what you're about to say. Um, so, this civil war in the British mandate, a civil war, uh, um, uh, the, the British yield to the newly formed United Nations who vote on a partition plan. Uh, that partition plan had been around since 1937 when a British commission called the Peel Commission had first suggested it to the British government saying we see no solution to this conflict other than separating the parties. Um, and the UN took that and made a map. It was a crazy map. There, was ver- there were patches. Uh, it was you know, what we call now Bantistans of different uh, jurisdiction, hardly connected geographically. But it was a map where these, as- these parts of the Palestine, which have more, which not necessarily the majority, but more Jewish residents, will be part of the Jewish state, and these parts, which have the, majority, the vast majority of Arab residents, will be part of an Arab state. And that was the partition plan. And Israel will be international. Uh, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be an internationalized city under United Nations control. That was the UN partition plan. Yes? I just want to clarify when you say civil war. I mean, in my mind, it's more like skirmish, isolated skirmishes, like a you know, riot here. Yeah, and I'm referring it to a civil war because there were no national boundaries at the time. But yes, it was riotous skirmishes with a lot of different players. Even the Jewish leadership was not completely unified because the Jabotinskyites and the Irgun were committing uh, uh, um, various terrorist acts, murdering British uh, officers, blowing up hotels, uh, at the same time that the, the, the uh, Ben-Gurion's Labor Zionist establishment was saying, we're not doing that. So there were many different, so why I call it a civil war is to distinguish it from what happens right after the UN partition plan when it becomes a war of nations. Constantly. Some of the worst atrocities against Arab populations were committed by the Irgun and the Stern gang. 
Um, and when the Palestinian national narrative remembers its catastrophe, it, its slaughters where, where Palestinian villages were destroyed um, or there were mass murders happened, it was frequently at the hands of the Irgun. Um, okay, so a civil war, a violent civil war uh, is taking place and now the moment has come to this moment was also in no way preordained uh, that the United Nations voted for partition and voted to um, formally create a Jewish state and an Arab state in the land that was formerly British Mandate, Palestine. At that point, the, the Jews, the Zionists, are ready. They, have, they, they don't have, they don't know if they're going to win. They don't have, they're scrambling, they're sending people, they're sending boxes of guns from World War I in from wherever they can get them. They don't have any money. It's like, it is like really incredibly dicey and tenuous, but they're ready. The Arabs living in Palestine are not ready. They do not have a unified leadership. Their leader, uh, the Mufti of Jerusalem, um, Haj Amin al-Husseini, flees to, has been kicked out of his job by the British, flees to Nazi Germany. No. Um, He's not a nice man, Haj Amin al-Husseini. He did, he did not do a service to the Palestinian national cause because he was the most visible leader of theirs. Um, uh, and instead what happens, because there is no Arab nation in waiting, is that five Arab nations invade Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, invade this as soon as, um, uh, as soon as Israel declares its independence. And the, what's called the Israeli War for Independence begins in May of 1948. Uh, in addition to the invading armies, there are local militias. Uh, there are militias up in the Galilee. There are different, different um, local military leaders who, who uh, fight the uh, now Israel Defense Force. Um, and it's quite, it's quite a free-for-all. Uh, but these, again, these Palestinian, um, local Palestinian militias are not a unified command. So out of desperation, utter desperation, utter determination, and whatever else in God's plan uh, happened, the Israeli, the new Israeli army was able to beat back the Arab armies and expand its territory in this war. As part of their expansion of their territory, several, many hundreds of thousands of local Palestinian Arabs were displaced. Some were forcibly evacuated from their homes. Um, yes, we do have a sense of a number, but just get for now, just imagine a pie chart that's all split up, because there was all of it. Many fled their homes. Think about what's happening in Syria right now or any other war zone. You get the hell out of there, right? And then 
Sadly, you're stuck in a refugee camp in Turkey and you can't get home, right? This is the story of refugees in wartime. The same thing happened all over, I mean, think about World War II, at the end of World War II in Europe. Oh my God, the number of displaced people. And many of them, many Jews, went home to find nothing. They'd survived somehow the war, they, and many of them wandered back to their homes to find nothing. Well, they, they Where, found that the local people had taken over their homes. In many cases, right. That the local people had taken their homes over, that they were being lived in, that they were, right. The same thing happened in Israel. Uh, and I'm not comparing the Nazi, the, not, the treatment of Nazis uh, to the treatment of, of the Israeli army. But the same phenomenon happened. Neighborhoods cleared out, the new people moved in, right, and claimed the territory. This is the origin. And so in many cases, people just fled. In many cases, they were encouraged by their leaders to flee with, the, with the, some of the most, for them, for the Arab, Arab forces, unfortunate bluster that we were going to, and this is as true as every other part of the story, that uh, don't worry, we'll have you back in your homes in two weeks. We'll squash them like ants, you know. Um, and then there were the areas where we have documentation that uh, the uh, Ben-Gurion and his brand new government made determinations that we needed this territory. And they forcibly evacuated certain villages and towns. Um, there were also some cases of slaughter in both sides. More, I have to say, more slaughter by the Arab forces than by the Jewish forces, but in the Palestinian narrative, it's very important for them to remember the times when they were slaughtered as innocents in the conflict. Dear Yassin. And in addition, there were many cases. Here's, here, I'll give you, a, like, we'll drill down a little bit. So my brother and sister-in-law live in Sipori. Sipori is a Jewish farming village in the Galilee. It goes back to the second century at least. While the Jews were gone, it became an Arab farming village called Safaria. Um, during the War of Independence, there was a militia leader who took occupancy of the, of the uh, Crusader Tower Citadel that sits in the middle of Tsipori mm. and fought bitterly and hard against the Israeli Defense Force that was trying to... So there were battles in Tsipori. In other towns in northern Israel, the, uh, the um, Israeli Defense Force would go in and say, if you do not put up resistance, you can stay. And one of the reasons why the Galilee is 50% Jewish and 50% Muslim and Christian, Arab, is because most of those villages were non-combatants. But Tsipari was a combatant. And when it was conquered, Israel raised the village. And then in 1948, took some Romanian Holocaust survivors and plunked them down there and said, here, you can farm here. This is war. Um, so after fighting um, until the, the armistice, the 48, the war went on until, when was the armistice? 
49? In 49, November of 49. Right. Bless you. Okay. I'm okay. In November of 49, an armistice was signed. That armistice meant that there was a ceasefire. The borders that existed at that moment were marked on a map by Moshe Dayan and uh, uh, I don't remember who was opposite him on the table, um, with a green crayon, a green pen. Uh, it was where Israeli forces held and where Arab forces had held. Where was that? Well, if you ever look at a map and you look at something called the green line, it gets talked about all the time, it was the armistice line of 1949. What had happened? Egypt had captured the Gaza Strip. Jordan had captured the West Bank of the Jordan River. Remember that little butterfly shape in those maps? Butterfly wing shape? I hope that rings a bell. Um, along with the eastern half of Jerusalem. Israel had succeeded in securing um, significant parts of the Galilee that weren't part of the original partition plan. Uh, the Negev was actually part of the plan for, for, for the Jews. And then had secured, the coastal plain had been like a little diamond shape, and they had secured a contiguous landmass along the coastal plain and another corridor up to the western part of Jerusalem. And the map that we know of as Israel from 1949 to 1967 is the result of when hostilities ceased. Who owned uh, Gaza and the West Egypt Bank? had Gaza. No, who owned it before they got it? It was part of Palestine. It was part of British mandate Palestine. It was supposed to be part of the Arab state that would coexist with the Jewish state in the former British Mandate Palestine. So it's incorrect to say that Jordan was the, because that's one thing I heard in the past. That what? Jordan was the Palestinian part and Israel was the Jewish part. That's not correct. That's right, that's not correct. The Arab state mandated by the UN partition plan never came to pass. It got chopped up during wartime by the Jordanians, the Egyptians, and the Israelis. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah, but I'm, I'm being historically accurate here. I just want you to know that. So it sounds like Israel wasn't continuous, wasn't contiguous, whatever you put In the UN partition plan, Israel was not contiguous. It had little, little if you ever look at a map, and I didn't bring maps, I, I'm sorry, uh, so you should look it up. You'll, you'll see what the UN partition plan of 1947 would have created. Did water rights have anything to do with the way that was chopped up? I don't think so. I think they did it based on population centers. Um, Israel dramatically expanded its territory during that war after it declared independence and was attacked. Right? Israel did not start the war of independence. Israel was attacked the day after they declared independence in 1948. In the process of this war, many people lost their homes. The people we now think of as the Palestinian refugees were refugees from this war. Um, and they, they had been living in some of these parts of what was now Israel 
for a long time. These were their villages. These were their towns. And they had been displaced by war. They found themselves in refugee camps in the West Bank of the Jordan River, which was now part of the Kingdom of Jordan, in the Gaza Strip, in Lebanon, in Syria. They were scattered all over. They had run, and now they couldn't get home again. Now, many of them could get home, actually, at the beginning, because they were not, the borders weren't secure. So there was a lot of going back and forth in this so-called armistice line in the early years of the state, and an incredible number of um, a war of attrition of um, uh, um, what were known as uh, fedayin, um, uh, it, what do you call it, not formal soldiers, infiltrating the land of Israel and killing <laughs> Jewish residents. There were Jewish reprisals against... Bandits. Bandits. I don't know. I don't want to use a, too much of a value-laden word. It's like they wanted the land back, and they were trying to get it. They were trying to stop this new nation from being established. In return, there were reprisals constantly from the Israeli Defense Forces. This was a low-level war. After the war, the armistice was declared, the war wasn't over. So there were several results from the war. One, there were hundreds of thousands of refugees. Um, two, um, uh, there was this war of attrition going on. And uh, uh, this was the nature of things. So by successfully winning its war of independence, Israel hadn't secured its existence. Right? It had many Arab countries who saw Israel as a colonialist incursion into what was Arab land. Um, and uh, um, so, so this is the beginning of what's called the Palestinian refugee problem. They didn't distinguish. Okay. They, the, the Zionists were a European uh, entity that had come into the, what they considered to be their territory. They didn't, they, they didn't distinguish uh, between uh, who, which imperial power this was. For them, it was an incursion chain. So you don't believe that <clears throat> there was a plan to de-Arabize uh, the land of Palestine, which was separate from the War of Independence, and that's where so many refugees, you know, came about. No, I do not believe that. So you do not believe in Ilan Pape's... No. Uh, Ilan Pape, for me, is way, way a polemicist. He's not... Is I do, he is a left-wing Israeli historian who wants... who, uh, along with... There's a, there's a cadre of left-wing Israeli historians who... who who tell a narrative that this was a premeditated and um, planned out. I think it's ridiculous but because... He does, he does talk about each of the villages that were destroyed, the numbers of people. Absolutely, that's all documented. But it was in wartime, most of this. And this was a war for survival. And to consider that there was some, for Ilan Pape, for this is me, now I'm just me talking. For Ilan Pape to consider that there was some master Jewish plan among the all-powerful Zionists when they were fighting for their lives. Yes, the Jabotinsky crew 
talked about population transfer. Um, Ben-Gurion is documented to, to have said, to, we know what Ben-Gurion said about um, uh, getting the Arabs out of Lida, out of Lod, and out of other places. This happened. But some master plan uh, by this desperate, ragtag, broke group of desperate soldiers, I don't buy it at all. But it did happen. It happened, but it, well, I'm making a key distinction here. Did it happen as an evil plan, or did it happen as part of the vagaries of a war for survival? And I think that's a excuse me. I think that's a crucial distinction. And I think the the uh, the Alain Papes and the other guys I'm forgetting their names who write these revisionist histories are serving a per, a positive purpose in bringing to light Israel's sins, mm-hmm. but to then presume that. Therefore, the whole project was a master plan to ethnic cleanse is, for me, absolutely inaccurate. I completely disagree with that analysis. Although, unfortunately, it it happened. No, it didn't happen. No, No, wait, wait. It did not happen. Let me keep talking history. Mm -hmm. I said there were several hundred thousand Mm -hmm. uh, Palestinians who were displaced from their homes. Several hundred thousand who wound up in refugee camps. Meanwhile, there were hundreds of thousands of Israelis or Arabs who were not displaced, who were immediately granted citizenship in the new state of Israel. So to, claim, to make it so tendentious to tell a story that isn't accurate. So let me keep going with the facts. These Israeli Arabs who were granted citizenship and became known as Israeli Arabs who are now con- considered to be Palestinian citizens of Israel as you know how lingo, lingo changes with every decade, as people want to be referred to in different ways, as their identities changes. Um, life was not rosy for them. They were both given citizenship and in this brand new state, which had a border um, from the Mediterranean east of nine miles wide, right from here to Kingston, uh, considered them enemy combatants as well as citizens. And the process of Israeli Arabs becoming fuller and fuller citizens, which they still have face uh, deficits today in Israel, significant deficits, is a long and ongoing story. However, um, the, so for the first 19 years of the state, from 1949 until 1960, right after the 67 war, Israeli Arabs who were citizens of Israel were under martial law. They were under military rule those first 19 years. Now think about it again. Was this because of some evil plan? I'm not saying it's good, but it wasn't an evil plan. It was a nascent government trying to secure their land, right? They didn't do it with wholesale ethnic cleansing. That happened during the war. These people stayed in their homes and became voting citizens of the land of Israel. But it's not so clear because it wasn't so rosy. Mm -hmm. Everything was dicey. Mm -hmm. So they were also under martial law. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until after the Six-Day War Mm -hmm. that uh, Arab citizens of Israel, martial law was lifted from them. Uh, That was in 68. 
um, in the intervening, and this is where the narrative, the Ilan Papi's narrative just falls to pieces. In the intervening decades, the Israeli Arab population, the population of Arab people who are citizens of Israel, has continued to grow apace with the rest of the population growth, and they now they are they are a pretty steady twenty percent of the population of the state of Israel. They sorry. Thanks. They are in many ways treated as second class citizens in Israel. This is clear. At the same time, if you go to an Israeli hospital, which is where you see the best of the vision of the founders, you will be treated by Israeli Arabs and Jews, doctors and nurses who work together. The patients are all mixed. There is, it's, you see an integrated society if you go to the hospitals. If you go to the universities, my sister-in-law, Roberta, has been working at a teacher's college in the Galilee for the last 30 years. It's about 40% Israeli Arab citizens studying to be teachers, and 60%, and they all, they, they learn together. Would, would right. it be accurate to say that there's, a, there's an opportunity difference, but that once you make it... So there's an opportunity difference for many reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons, and what we're facing today, over these last 20 years, is an increase in vituperative racism against Israeli Arab citizens. Right? The situation sucks right now. Israel's founding document is not being respected right now. However, Israel did not wholesale remove the Arab population, slaughter them, or anything like that. The evidence is before anyone's eyes who goes there and, and spends time in the society there. That's what I need to disabuse people of. That doesn't mean that an injustice wasn't committed against the Palestinians or that they don't have rightful aspirations. It means that I, in the strongest terms, disagree with narratives uh, that, that, that the kind that you're describing. Yeah, yeah, I think he's... Sure, and then go to Israel and go meet Israeli Arab citizens who were never removed from their homes, who have lived their lives there, who are, you understand, it's like, it, I get it. There have been systematic efforts to secure Jewish territory. I, but it just, it, it doesn't hold up, Jane. Villages were depopulated. People, you know, they were <laughs> people were killed, uh, and I don't believe that it was all due to. Um, I don't believe that it, the war of independence was as horrific uh, from as the Arabs coming in as as you have presented. This is your belief, and uh, not my belief, Jane. One in a hundred Israelis. You say what you said again. Wait a second, just a second. I'm sorry. One in a hundred. Israelis was killed during the War of Independence. This was a population of 600,000. They lost one in a hundred 
during that war. Not to mention, this was a, this was a it, it was a war for survival. And um, uh, it was not, their victory was not a foregone conclusion. The Armistice Line of 1949 was an accident of a moment. Um, the whole thing was so tenuous. Uh, uh, they didn't have, you know, in later years, Israel today is a behemoth, a military giant. Israel today, their ruling class, the people who are running the government, are people who I consider to be racist, ultra-nationalist, and intolerant. Um, but to, so I don't disagree with that. Also, I think you heard me say clearly that a significant portion of those Palestinians displaced during the War of Independence were forcibly ejected from their homes and that it was premeditated in some cases. But to blow that up into the entire narrative is, is for me, um, uh, not accurate history. That's all I can say. That does not mean I do not feel that the Palestinians have a right to their own national homeland. I'm saying that the tendentious history that they and their sympathizers are telling, which in, when it goes to extremes, in, just like, you know, everybody who, every ultranationalist makes up history. I don't want to make up history. I want to see what happened and still acknowledge that people have rights. But I don't want to mythicize history. You know, part of the Palestinian leadership's party line is that the Jews never had Jerusalem as their capital. There is no historical King David. There was no temple on the Temple Mount. It's all made up stuff by Jewish propagandists. All of that is just made up, made up shit, right? But, you know, um, I was reading about Narendra Modi, the, who just won re-election as an ultranationalist prime minister of India. Business-friendly... Hindu pride, um, all the stuff that would be making Nehru turn over in his grave, right? Um, and uh, it's the same trend there as you see in Israel, as you see in the United States, the same trend that we're struggling with that's making me lose sleep. Uh, but um, there was a fascinating article in the New York Times about how the Hindu Nationalist Party is rewriting Indian history by making stuff up to show that there's always been a Hindu nationalism, right? Nationalism, there hasn't always been a Hindu nationalism, there hasn't always been a Jewish nationalism, there hasn't always been a Palestinian nationalism. We make up national myths to validate our new identities, but if we do that while ignoring historical fact, we become part of the problem. And there are ultranationalists in Israel who are part of the problem, and there are Palestinians who are also a big part of the problem in that they tell their story as though it's fact. I think it's possible to tell your national story and to also listen to another's mm -hmm. and respect the historical record. Okay? That's, that's you know, that, okay, so. <sighs> Thanks for giving me a forum to express myself. And uh, uh, so I see there's a couple of comments. Nathan? Mm -hmm. I mean, you would, I would go to a restaurant and 
that's it. Arabs and Israelis all living mm -hmm. together. The playgrounds, the anywhere you go. Lucas and I once went to play basketball together. Next thing we knew, we had all these Arab kids playing with us. Mm -hmm. You know, and so on. And we befriended uh, quite a few. And one invited us to his home in an Arab village. You know, if you're driving, a lot of times when you're driving, you be oh, that's an Arab village. That's an Arab village. Well, we went into the Arab village. We, we, this person lived in a home that was gorgeous. And he took us all around the village. And it was all Israeli Arabs. Only Israeli Arabs lived. Everything was Arabic. It was like you almost were in a little different mini country. But they were Israeli citizens. And they, uh, they, were, pro they were happy to be there. Right. So everything is gray, everybody. Everything is gray. Um, the Israeli Arab, there are three school systems in Israel. There's the secular school system, which serves the secular Jewish population. There's the religious school system, which serves the religious Jewish population. There's the Arab school system, which your instruction is in Arabic. Um, uh, because the Israeli Arabs are both a minority and a disrespected minority in Israel, um, uh, they don't control the purse strings of the government. So guess what happens to these separate but equal school systems, right? It happens. On the other hand, these Israeli Arabs do get to go to university, do get to enter careers. They are the dentists and the lawyers and the many of them. Many of them, though, come from villages that are extremely conservative. Right? These are really, and I say that with a small c, extremely conservative, where some of the women in these villages haven't gone more than five miles from their home in their whole lives. Right? So there's an also a, a, a um, what's the word I'm going to use? Centrifugal or centripetal? There's another force that also maintains these conservative Arab societies in the face of a modernizing juggernaut that Israel's on. In Jaffa is the best example of integration in Israel. And at the same time, Jaffa is suffering from intense gentrification right now. And so, um, so does that sound familiar? You know, what's happening to Bed-Stuy? What's happening to, it's like, it's happening in Jaffa too. So these forces are all at work everywhere and everything is gray, everybody. It's all mixed up. Yeah. They, um, there's also a lot of unequal opportunity with, I don't know what they're called, but like Ethiopian Jews, like people that, you know. Yes, and so, so, has so you have, so you have a society that was founded by Europeans. The Zionists were from Russia and Poland, Germany, France, some England, United States. This is a Eurocentric bunch who has taken the European national model and brought it to the Middle East. What is endemic to Eurocentrism? Racism. You know, so anti-Semitism also. <laughs> But the European Jews who were escaping anti-Semitism brought their Eurocentrism with them. And they have treated Jews from North Africa, Ethiopia, Yemen, as lower than them from the beginning of the state, as well as Arabs. Mm -hmm. Right? There was this, hold on, I'll get you. So, that's partly the truth. The other part of the truth is that uh, over the course of 70 years, 60, 70 years, Israel has turned into a melting pot. And for a Moroccan to marry an Ashkenazi or for a Yemenite to marry someone, it's all getting all mixed up now. 
Uh, and so even those old tropes are starting to lose steam in Israel. Mm-hmm. However, the Israeli Arabs face a more systemic challenge to being integrated into Israeli society, and that is the military, service in the military. Um, the, the, the people, in, the citizens of Israel who serve in the military, that is the great melting pot of Israel, and it is also the great networking center of Israel. The people in your unit, your soldiers, your platoon, the people you meet in the army, they become your connections into the business world, into the university world, into the research world. It's like, they, into, into, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, the ultra-Orthodox do not serve in the military, um, except for a tiny number of them. Uh, so they are not part of that network. The Bedouin do serve in the military. Hmm. Um, uh, because the Bedouin are not the same as the Palestinian farming, farmer population. The Bedouin are the herders. They don't consider themselves Palestinians by and large, uh, just to, to make things more complicated. The Druze, who are a sect, an Arab sect, who have their own, very, uh, their own esoteric religion that's neither Islam or anything else. It's, uh, the Druze, who live in numbers in Israel, they all serve in the military. The Bedouins are Muslim, but their own kind of Muslim. Because the Bedouins tend to be sort of animist, um, old, really, you know, they, they're, they're, they're Muslims, but they're, diff- they're different. There are a lot of different kind of Muslims, right? Um, I was just reading, and I want to point out this book just so that you all know that I'm really trying to get the whole picture. Um, this is a textbook yes. called Side by Side, Parallel Histories of Israel-Palestine. And it was created by Palestinian and Jewish educators in Israel and Palestine, uh, for high schools especially, and colleges. And it's in English. And what it is, is when you open the book, always on this side of the page, they did this project together, is the Israeli narrative, always on the right side of the page, and always on the left side of the page is the Palestinian narrative. Mm. It's audacious and incredible. Mm-hmm. Is it confusing? No. Yeah. Well, it's really confusing. I'm afraid of. It's really confusing. But I want you to be confused. Oh. But so, uh, I'll sh- you, you'll see it. I'll leave it right here. I wonder who the authors were. Yeah, they're Israeli and Palestinian educators. Yes. Um, who, uh, again, in the best of what's going on in Israel and Palestine, this sort of thing, in the best. And it's really mind-boggling to read this, because it's like, you read this story, I say, I get it, you read this story, you say, what? Wait. <laughs> Wait, these are two incredibly different narratives of what happened. And here, it's called Side by Side, I'm leaving it right here, you can see it when, you, when I'm done. We had to read that last year from a, for the class that I took before I went to Israel. It's fantastic because just just that um, the first chapter is about what happened after the Balfour Declaration, and I grew up in Hebrew school, and the Balfour Declaration was a good thing, right? No, it wasn't <laughs> for them. And all the all the the riots in the '30s that we didn't know about, all the 
decisions that outside entities made that affected the, the Jews who had moved there and the Arabs who were living there. The, the, the farmers got screwed all the way, all around, because they were, they, the absentee landlords sold the land out from under them. They didn't understand what was going on when the pioneers came and said, hi, we own the land. What do you mean you own the land? I've been here, my family's been here for hundreds of years, and they had to move, and, and so on, all, all the way through. All the decisions, all the history that we learned about from one point of view, you now see the other side, and you see how the disagreements and the misunderstandings and the, uh, the bitterness has, has grown or started and, and, and grown throughout. It, it's an excellent book. Uh, it makes, makes your head spin, but it's wonderful. It makes your head spin, yeah. Uh, yes, Carrie. I just want to say two things. One, I think like even better than the specifics of the history, I think it's a wonderful lesson for high school kids, just yeah. like the nature of history. Yeah, because these are educators who really wanted to, but the, so we're thinking pedagogically, yeah. It's, it's not propaganda either way. It's documented facts. Um, just which facts you choose. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I know, it's, it makes your head spin, yeah. What story you tell is history, yeah. And the other thing, you probably don't want to go here, but I just want to say this, and this is not to put you on the spot, but probably what you said is the reason I'm schlepping here from Poughkeepsie, because that kind of thing keeps me up at night. I mean, I'm sitting here like shaking a little now, just like hearing the title. So I'd be really curious if there's any room for it, like to hear why that appeals to you, like I'd want to hear. Um, I, I don't want to right now, right, I but I'd love for you two to, I think that's something for you two to talk about. Right. Um, yeah. Conversations, let the conversations commence, absolutely. Um, uh, but it's so important, and this came up in the class I was teaching yesterday as well. So Carrie's shaking a little bit. Now, because I'm not an academic, I don't have to pretend to not have a body and emotions. Mm. Right? Uh, <laughs> oh my God. You know, it's one of the things I hate about so-called objective scholarship, right? Everyone's got their, uh, got skin in the game or you wouldn't be writing about it and teaching about it. And so part of the difficulty and challenge of doing this is that the Jews are a traumatized people. The Palestinians are a traumatized people. Um, we care for, our, we, are, we, are, we are frightened for our existence. That's because someone tried to wipe us out. Right? We're not making it up. We Jews have a real challenge, which is to somehow retain our composure, our heart, our rational being, while we acknowledge that our lives have, uh, we're, oh, we were almost snuffed out as a people. For, we, if we had been in the wrong place, we'd be at the end of a bullet or a gas chamber. And that, therefore, for me, the existence of the State of Israel is absolutely essential given the presence of anti-Semitism in the world. Right? So, but I, when I say essential, if I was a different person, I would be a screamer saying essential. But I want to set, uh, uh, do you understand what I'm saying? So much of the screaming that happens, so much of the violation of the other that happens is coming out of this accumulated trauma and terror. Um, I don't know how to solve that, 
But in our synagogue, when we talk about this, we can acknowledge the feelings that we have mm-hmm. when, when we hear stuff. I mean, um, that what, you, you know, and so I just wanted to thank you for sharing that, Carrie. Uh, yes, sir. Um, just for some reason, it's always stayed with me, an interview I heard, I think, on 60 Minutes in 1970 with uh, Jewish veterans of the war. And, and this one mild guy in his late 50s told the story of getting the order to go clear a village. And he went into one home where coffee pot was still brewing and the family pictures were still on, on, on the shelves and that it's haunted him. And I, I guess I'm only bringing this up now to say thank you for, for, for taking these global issues and, and positing them in a way that says there's reality on an individual basis on all sides. You know, mm. that, that, I, I'm, not, he was, I'm not saying right or wrong. Oh, I understand what you're saying. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So let me try to cut to the chase in these limited minutes. Oh, yes, Todd. I've been hanging on to a question. For yeah, me. I know you have. I apologize. <laughs> the, uh, when, when you said the Arabs are second-class citizens in Israel. In certain regards. Huh? In certain regards. Okay. My question is, not knowing the answer, is that the way you would say blacks are second-class citizens in the U.S. where there's a de facto racism that's going on? But, of course, the laws don't have any bias in them at all. Correct. In the United States. Correct. The same situation. Same Israel, situation. Somehow do have bias. It's relatively, it, no, it's the same situation. Under the law, under the law, uh, laws of Israel, they are um, uh, complete citizens of the state. In every way. In every way. The fact that they don't serve in the military. That's their choice, well, it's fascinating. Um, again, and this, I was reading an article by Alain Pape. And uh, no, I don't ignore him. <laughs> I just argue with him in my head. But in this case, uh, in 1954, the Israeli military decided to invite Israeli Arabs, as they were known, that, to join the military, assuming that none of them would want to. And uh, apparently, many, many, many came and wanted to sign up for the service. I mean, I think it was. Who knows why? But we could speculate. It's like... The, the what year again? 54. Good job? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, job. it's not a job. You're a volunteer. No money. No money. Be part of the community. Were they... I, don't, I have to do more research about it because I hadn't really learned about it. But... Um, um, so... Uh, According to what I dug up, and this was just before class, um, when they were overwhelmed by potential recruits, they rescinded the offer because it was more than they expected. So it cuts both ways. And what developed in the state over those next years, and I assume part of it has to do with, this was the state was six, five years old, and there was, uh, again, the, these, were, these were Israeli citizens who were also under martial law, there was also a war of attrition going on. Their families had been separated between Jordan and Israel or Egypt and Israel after the war. And they were, they were, there was a lot of cross-border activity. So, you know, it was a very dicey thing to invite them to join the military. And then they rescinded the offer. That's all I know. But so so, now? Now, now, um, now they, could, they, they would be free to join, and they don't. Okay. Um, but some must. 
Well, I said the Druze, different ethnic popu- different ethnic Arab populations do serve the Bedouin, the Druze, yep. and others. But the, pal- the the group that identifies as Palestinian Israelis, by and large, do not. Um, and so, in terms of their second class citizenship, it's de facto not de jure. Okay. Um, yes. society is to be in the army. So to me, it was a no-brainer. Why aren't the Arab Israeli citizens joining the army? It's because they really have a dual allegiance. Right. So even though they're citizens, in their hearts, they're very split. It's very split. I can't join the army because then I will be turning away from the Palestinian National initiative. It's even more graphic. That's right. Thank you. That's so clear. It's even more graphic than that. My nephews, my Israeli nephews, when they served in the army, some of their activity was patrolling in the West Bank. And uh, they hated it. They're, you know, uh, the system is set up such that the army in areas um, um, uh, B and C, the army of of the Palestinian territories, the army... Uh, patrols there and maintains security there. And so can you imagine a Palestinian Israeli patrolling, going into a house, making arrests of other Palestin- others that they feel allied to as Palestinians? It, they, they are in a very, very d- complicated position. Um, and that is true. On the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, <laughs> when... Israeli Palestinian Palestinian citizens of Israel are polled as to whether they would willingly join into a Palestinian state. The vast majority say no. Why? Because Israel is a, Israel provides them with health care, social security, um, educational opportunities. The, it's it. They they do have recourse to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in Israel is one of the most, is, is, even though the, the ultra-right is chipping away at it, just like in this country, uh, is a bastion of democratic values in Israel. Um, uh, there are, they can vote for Knesset. They have, the Israeli Arab parties have about 10 members of Knesset. Uh, they're somewhat underrepresented, but they have representation in the government, even though they're never in the governing coalition. Um, and were they to join the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, they know what the score is there. It's a kleptocracy. It's pure cronyism. There is no uh, due process. Um, it's, it ain't good. It ain't good. And they know it. And so they are, Israeli Arab citizens are really torn. And, I, and they're, in a, they're in a very challenging position because they know they have it good, on the one hand, compared to not just their Palestinian cousins, but just cast your eye about it. Syria next door, hell on earth. Egypt, an absolutely repressive regime. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, furthermore, Bahrain, furthermore, and we didn't get, we'll get into this next time, Palestinians... Uh, uh, displaced Palestinians who've gone to Kuwait, 
Saudi Arabia and all the other Arab Emirate countries as workers are systematically denied rights there. Um, they're not really wanted there. Uh, they can work there. And then, so the Palestinians are a displaced people who can find no purchase in their brethren Arab lands. We're going to talk about that next time because we're going to run out of time now. But I think it's worthwhile to talk about the situations of the of Israeli Arabs. It's really complicated. On the one hand, they know they're in one of the best situations they can be in the Middle East. On the other hand, they know that they are not really embraced by the society that they live in. And hmm? it sounds mutual. It sounds like the ambivalences. Uh, yes, but there are, but no, in this case, there are many, many Israeli Arabs who are successful middle class people now who, when they petition to move into a Jewish neighborhood, meet intense resistance from, the lo- from, the, from that, right? They, they no, it, it cuts both ways, but there are plenty of Israeli Arabs. Who, they are, they, there are the villagers who are still, there are, there are some who are still very small town local folks, but many of them at this point in the juggernaut that is modern Israel, they've been lifted by those tides too. And they are saying, so, come on, accept me. I'm Israeli. I speak Hebrew. I'm a professional. I'm a citizen. I vote. New? So no, it's not, it's not parody there. No. Sounds very familiar to the, the Jewish history in Europe where they were trying to... Exactly. And this is the profound irony that I want to start with next time. This is eerily familiar because it was the situation of Jews trying to enter 19th century European democracies. Right? And the way it has played out is that the Palestinians are the Jews of Israel. And you cannot ignore this fact. And it's just so ironic and painful and everything Mm -hmm. that as national movements emerge, they emerge in the image of their colonizer. And if the Jewish people, as we do, see ourselves as a scattered exiled people returning to our homes, the Palestinians watched and learned from us and absorbed this national narrative and made it their own. And they are our shadow. Their narrative is also not a typical national narrative. They are the Jews of the Middle East now. They, they, have, no, they have no place to rest their feet. Uh, their national, the, the right wing, Jabotinsky said in the 1930s, and it's the Jabotinskites who run the Israeli government now. Jabotinsky said in the 1930s, explicitly, for the Arab individual, everything. For the Arabs as a nation, nothing. That's what he said. Echoing, I think unconsciously, exactly what the Jews had faced in Europe. For the Jewish individual, absolutely. Citizenship, anything you want. But for the Jews as a nation, nothing. And so... The Israeli Zionist national experiment finds itself faced with 
uh, a kind of uh, a doppelganger, uh, a, a counterpart that emerges mm -hmm. in the shadow mm -hmm. of Zionism's success. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that gets talked about too much, oh, but it's really important. Um, and, oh God, I wish we had another hour right now. <laughs> um, so flag these thoughts for next time. Mm -hmm. um, the Palestinians demand a right of return to their ancestral homes, just as the Jews wanted to, to return. So what I want you to flag is that many forces conspired. Anti-Semitism uh, writ into um, um, the United Nations anti-Zionism, um, uh, the enshrinement of the Palestinians as refugees uh, by the Arab world, who wanted them to be these poor miskinim, these poor unfortunates, to keep in the crosshairs Israel as the villain of the story. Keep in mind that um, uh, Palestinians who now have official refugee status are the children, grandchildren, and sometimes great-grandchildren of the original refugees who have been living in their so-called refugee camps, which are actual towns, for their entire lives, uh, have not been absorbed by any other Arab nation, and have a United Nations agency, the United Nations Relief Works Authority, expressly budgeted and devoted to supporting them to continue to live as refugee status without passports. The whole thing is so cynical and so, like, uh, horrible. I think of the Palestinians in many ways as the most, one of the most unfortunate people of, of modern times. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they have embraced their identity as refugees. And if you think about it, I am the grandson of Jewish refugees from Russia and Poland, right? My grandfather and grandmother left because he was running away from the Russian army draft. And uh, uh, they, and he didn't want to be cannon fodder. Um, you, you, know the, you know the stories about how the Russian army would, would take 12-year-old Jewish boys for, and, and enlist them for 25 years of conscription. Um, this was commonplace. Uh, uh, I have never thought of myself as a refugee. My grandfather was a refugee. I found a new home. Why? Is a, think about this. Why are the Palestinians self-identified as refugees when they are the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of refugees? It's so complicated, so sewn into their identity, and so manufactured by international um, forces that want to place Israel now and I'll conclude with this, and it's not the last word, but I'll conclude with this. The nature of anti-Semitism, the purpose of anti-Semitism is to have a scapegoat, is to have the Jews to blame for all your problems. Um, after the foundation of the State of Israel and the horrors of the Holocaust, anti-Semitism was not fashionable anymore. And so a new way to blame the Jews emerged called anti-Zionism. 
where the Jewish state, among all the nations of the earth, was uniquely a sin. And that if, the, and had created this problem called the Palestinian refugee problem, and if only Israel would dot, 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 then there'd be peace. If you take just the most cursory view of 20th century history, this is the most ridiculous thing you could ever say. But we buy it. We buy the narrative. Because this is where Zionism, which was an incredible success, I mean, look at it. When this, there's an article about emerging anti-Semitism in Germany in the New York Times this week. Okay. Like, <laughs> I'll read it with my morning coffee. It's like, ugh. Uh, it's no surprise. <laughs> Right? So you're saying that the Let me finish my Sorry. sentence. It's no surprise. What's different about anti-Semitism in Germany today than 75, 80 years ago? It's illegal. Well, it's illegal. <laughs> the biggest difference? Israel. I can, as a Jew, I can go to Israel and pick up a gun before somebody tries to kill me. And Mr. Liberal here is not mincing any words. It's like Zionism was a success. We created a place where we could defend ourselves and we created, in a much more positive way, a place where hundreds of thousands of Jews could come to a holy mountain in the north and have bonfires all night, right? Because it's on the Jewish calendar without thinking twice about it. On the other hand, Zionism was a failure because the early Zionists, their goal, remember, was to solve the quote-unquote Jewish problem. Unfortunately, victims are never capable of eradicating the oppression that afflicts them, right? How do you solve the, the you know, don't get me started. <laughs> and unfortunately, Zionism did not succeed in solving the Jewish problem. Healing the trauma? No, anti-Semitism. The fact of anti-Semitism, the fact that it is convenient to have Jews, and that if the world didn't have Jews, they would have to invent them, which is certainly what happens in, in, in Judenrein countries in Europe even to this day. Um, uh, Anti-Semitism became globalized at the United Nations and became, an, an, became a focus on Israel as being the original sin of the entire region. And if you want to know, again, fact, if you count up the, of the th X number of thousand UN General Assembly resolutions and X number of hundred UN Security Council resolutions passed over the last 70 years, approximately half of them have to do with Israel or condemning Israel. Wow. Okay? I can't make this stuff up. That doesn't happen unless anti-Semitism is at work on the most basic level, wanting to blame the Jews and put the focus on them for the world's problem. Does this excuse the current Israeli government's X, Y, Z? No. I oppose those policies. But to understand, we have to have an historical framework that takes into consideration the nature of anti-Semitism. And I say that because it has also recapitulated itself in, mi in microcosm 
with the poor Palestinian situation. And they then get held up as the victims of the Jews, which they are, but which they have also been enshrined as by the United Nations and all the Arab states of the world. Um, so, um, and the leftists. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the rightists. You know, it's like anybody who wants things to be black and white. Anybody who wants things to be black and white, blame the Jews. I don't know the solution. Uh, all I know is that uh, uh, we're out of time. <laughs> and that's not the solution. What? Uh, no, next time. Thank you, everybody.